welcome to this podcast, which is a follow-up on the IFA input paper, Afghanistan, August 2021, a tentative reassessment of cultural and foreign policy and civil society support, and tries to update our findings. But before returning to the main topic, it seems important to stress that Afghanistan is facing the worst humanitarian crisis in 20 years. The Taliban takeover led to a dramatic reduction on foreign aid on which the country and its population of around 40 million people depend on so heavily. Half of Afghanistan population is living in extreme poverty and more than a million Afghan children are at risk of life-threatening malnutrition. And more, this situation requires the world community and especially Europe to act immediately to counter misery and human suffering. But beyond humanitarian aid, Afghans also need other forms of support, namely help to civil society and help, for example, in the educational sector, where renewed efforts in terms of cultural foreign policy should come into play. This and how to engage with the Taliban is what we are discussing today with Yasemin Ulfat Zedigzai and Tariq Siddiq. Both of our speakers have Afghan origins. Okay, I am Yasamin Ulfa Tsirikzai. I'm a lecturer at the University of Duisburg-Essen, where I focus on um, 19th century uh, Afghanistan history with, in, in context with the British Empire, uh, with a focus on uh, uh, gender masculinity, especially. So I'm Tarek Siddiq, and I work at the University of Marburg, where I research mostly on social movements under authoritarian conditions. Um, so particularly, uh, my case study used to be Iran, and I also work on other Persianate countries, such as Afghanistan um, and in Central Asia. I'm Azim al I'm a political scientist focused on the um, Islamic world, generally speaking, especially on civil society in the Arabic Islamic world. So we last talked in um, in November, I believe, in terms of where we still have venues in terms of cooperation, um, civil society aid in Afghanistan. Where do we stand today, Tarek? So what we saw since November, I think, has been quite similar to what we predicted. Um, there is still protests going on. There are still uh, particularly women's protests going on in Afghanistan and a lot of activities and engagement. But at the same time, we have certainly seen uh, an uptake in uh, repression by the Taliban regime and uh, definitely uh, attempts to consolidate rule by pursuing more repressive uh, policies. There are no huge surprises. A little surprising, I found that the uh, activism that is especially generated through social media does have some form of impact, especially in the cases where activists all over the world um, um, reprimanded the Taliban, for example, for capturing um, uh, Professor Jalal. To explain, you mean the famous professor of political science, respected by most Afghans because he criticized all Afghan governments, beginning with the communist as well as the Western-backed government. And he calls the Taliban live on TV in the presence of their spokesman, Kafs, an Afghan term for stupid. He was arrested briefly. Um, the, the pressure sort of worked and uh, they were then uh, subsequently released later on. This is, however, not true for everybody. The two women activists that were just captured, we, I think, still don't know where they are. At least when I last checked today, there wasn't any news on, on their whereabouts. So there is some good... Uh, among the bad. Uh, okay, we're talking about international pressure, but I'm also I'm mainly interested also in what can we do to help civil society 
on the ground in Afghanistan. But I would say that international pressure protecting their rights uh, does help them on the ground very much. Um, and the other aspect that helps is uh, protecting discursive uh, spaces. Some of the problems that we are facing in Afghanistan right now is that there's a lot of pressure also on media corporations. And we already have seen media producers uh, moving abroad in many cases, um, sometimes operating from abroad, sometimes uh, working from digital spaces, um, and sometimes actually joining uh, media corporations which are not based in Afghanistan, but which now have Afghan staffers and Afghan workers. And these spaces are really important in maintaining a certain dialogue and criticism of the regime, which in the domestic um, media's landscape is going to be more and more problematic and difficult, uh, but is a main fuel for any type of civil society activism. So maintaining media space is crucial to keep up pressure on the Taliban? If you try to compare it to the 90s, there was uh, basically no one was there. Basically, no one was watching. There was no news. There were no news outlets. There was no journalists who could have even go in there. And now we're much more connected. And the Taliban, they are not China. So in, if we if we put pressure on China to release activists, it's, it's yeah, it doesn't work that much because China is a great power. They don't need anyone. They almost don't need anyone else. But the Taliban are not China. They are not as, uh, as, uh, as established. And so they will always be dependent on what the international community does and the international community not accepting them was uh, part of the downfall in the 90s. Um, so the uh, international pressure will always um, do, do something in Afghanistan. Let me briefly come back to media. The Taliban became to a certain extent media friendly as they want to exploit the power of media for themselves. They like to discuss things on television, you know, so talk shows where they even talk with uh, people who are highly critical and the release of, of uh, Professor Jalal in, in, in the past. I mean, he's been very harsh. So he didn't just criticize lightly. He criticized very harshly what the Taliban said, but they still um, they, they they captured him, but they also released him. So there is a possibility of having this kind of uh, a back and forth talk on, 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 on TV shows. It's a way of engaging with the Taliban for civil society. So even for, for activists. So. And it happens in the public eye. So everybody can look at it. If Everybody can have videos of that all over the world. It's a way for the Taliban to present themselves also. So we have to sort of swallow that. But it's also a way to keep the conversation going. So if there are TV programs where they are allowed to engage and, and bring forth their points, but also be forced to listen to other points and other ideologies, that's something that TV programs can actually work with. And I think Tolo is probably a good partner in that because it's not state TV. So these things uh, can work. TV has been very open in the past. It's it's very amazing to see that even compared to other countries, Afghanistan was, when it comes to freedom of the press, uh, had some very, very harsh realities, but also some very, very brave people who really pushed it forward. And that's something that you don't have to build from scratch. That's something that you can keep going. And so if there is a focus on that, maybe also establish English language programs where Taliban are invited, but they have to be confronted with other people who have other agendas and other ideologies. That's something that they would probably agree to, because when I see what they do on Twitter, for example, they do look for discussions to promote themselves, of course, so that's their agenda, but they still are then um, open to the, they still have to, to confront others then. And that's, that's something that one could work with, I think. Turning to another very important issue, education has always been in the very center of German and European cultural foreign policy in Afghanistan. Can it still be the entry door to civil society? 
I think education has to be at the uh, at the at the very very lowest level. It's it's sort of the basis for everything that can happen further. What we have done, and that was a huge problem, is we educated one part, one very small part of Afghan society very well, and we neglected everybody else. And so whatever we had is now that we have an, an uh, um, what you would call an educational elite. And education helps the Afghan people to do uh, to to change the country according to their own terms, and they will definitely, I think, not uh, not just just listen to the Taliban and do whatever they like. There is a will of the Afghan people. They have a they have a they have um, a form of of. of idea about how they want Afghanistan to be. And this idea might not be what we in the West would like to focus on, but it's definitely also not the ideal that the Taliban have. So it is something in between. I also think that even with um, with uh, um, trying to, to sort of further the goal of, of girls' education, maybe even women's education in university, there's also some ways uh, where, where uh, there, there can be a cooperation and the Taliban will listen because there are some factions inside the Taliban who actually are not opposed to these things. Um, however, the problem will be if you, uh, if you don't, uh, if, if you want to establish something like uh, independent theater groups or, or cultural life or something that is very uh, that is very um, very progressive, then I think there there will be uh, there will be a stop to that. There will not be any uh, possibilities for that. But when it comes to education at universities, uh, I think even the Taliban will agree that um, if they're grown women, they're studying at university, uh, we can be more lenient and more open with open ideas. So I think if there would be corporations between universities, the University of Kabul, uh, that would be an entrance into the country, but also be very open about it and not try to hide that you're actually trying to get some form of Western education. Tell them, you know, we want to help you with the education at universities so that Afghans can travel freely. Also, maybe then uh, pursue uh, a, a career outside of Afghanistan. Maybe then afterwards return. Need they need educational? Uh, they they just need a job training for for the the easiest of things, operating machinery, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's something where um, you can show presence. Uh, you can be there and tell show Afghan people we're not leaving. Huh? We're still here and we're still having some form of eye on what's happening. Education should be a goal of itself, independent of uh, what effects it has. Um, but even if we talk about the effects, we should always think about these, um, and I consider education to be a humanitarian concern, these humanitarian concerns to not necessarily directly impact um, civil society, but they always have um, long-term, mid-term, indirect effects. A large number of artists, especially musicians, have left Afghanistan. Among them, many women who were very actively militating for more equality. Are there at all any spaces for women's rights in Taliban Afghanistan now? 
saying that you want Afghan women to be singers and on stage and, and sort of expressing themselves in a very Western way, that is something that probably takes a little bit more time, especially from more conservative groups inside Afghan societies. This idea that women should move freely huh, and that women should be allowed to work whatever they like and that they should uh, be educated, that they should go to university, that they should become teachers and nurses, that's something that is widely accepted in Afghan society. The Taliban said we don't want women to move too far and they uh, taxi drivers can now control how, how they wear their hijab and how they wear their um, Islamic attire. A lot, even conservative Afghans were very much opposed to that because they said don't give taxi drivers that kind of power. Our Afghan women are uh, good people anyway, you don't have to police that. So there is this discrepancy, not too much free, not a Western kind of society that maybe we are dreaming of, but um, certain openings are definitely there. Moving forward, what do you think is most needed on the ground, apart from purely humanitarian aid? Especially organizations which do any type of capacity building are really desperately needed. Um, and they oftentimes have expertise in fields that are sort of approved of by the Taliban as well. So particularly in the medical sector and the uh, humanitarian sector, but they also, they can choose whom they work with and whom they empower of. What do you mean by capacity building? Um, for example, if you have in, uh, uh, for example, if you have an Afghan group that wants to uh, work on water uh, rights, for example, or an environmental issue, um, they may not they have certain ca uh, capacity. For example, they have personnel, knowledge, experience, but they also lack some things. For example, um, the funding to pursue the project. Um, but also maybe the connections to pursue their project. Uh, maybe they need a mediator. Maybe they need um, uh, funds to hire someone permanently. Uh, maybe they need tools and so on and so forth. And once you provide these things, these are not one of uh, eight. This is not something that is consumed and then disappears. This is a capacity. This is something that can be used long-term uh, or at least medium-term. Um, and in that sense, you can uh, promote all types of societal actions, um, but more than that, you can promote their capacity to maybe act in the future, not immediately, but long-term. Essentially, it really depends on, um, because every type of humanitarian aid has ideally two impacts. One is helping the people on the ground. So for example, uh, preventing starvation by uh, um, uh, allocating food and uh, very basic resources and immediate aid. And the other effect is capacity building. And then for particularly for the capacity building, the question is always um, which institutions are strengthened? Is it state institutions? Is aid distributed through the state, allowing this aid to be, for example, political and conditional? Or is this distributed um, through non-state actors um, and particularly ones uh, uh, through, which are affiliated, for example, with the United Nations, um, which is then driven by humanitarian concerns um, and not by political concerns from a Taliban-controlled state. So this allows certain independent activities, or is this even capacity building on the ground which allows for certain actors to be able to organize, to be able to um, allocate resources independent of the central state and thus strengthens them and gives them a long-term perspective to be able to also partake in uh, negotiations and uh, social politics. This brings us to the Taliban promise of a certain degree of pluralism in multi-ethnic Afghanistan. 
Um, and this is like a very vague idea in a sense, um, but this is something that can be promoted and fostered and which would have um, hugely beneficial uh, effects as well. Um, and this can be enforced in multiple venues of cooperation. So for example, when um, there's a develop developmental project um, in cooperation with the Taliban government, um, there can be minimum quotas of who gets to participate and who doesn't get to participate. There can be checks in place um, that the funding doesn't go only into uh, the government's hands, which should have been the case also with the former government, but let's not talk about that, um, but uh, goes into these local actors who need that support particularly non-state actors um, who may not be necessarily visible um, to the Taliban state. So for example, um, uh, right now the big discussion is about um, these female uh, government workers who are excluded from the state in many cases. Um, and a non uh, and a um, international actor on the ground who uh, um, insists on working on, for example, women's health care with female doctors forces the hand uh, to some extent, or forcing the hand is uh, said too much, but exerts a certain degree of pressure and influence to involve female professionals in those fields. Um, and this has a beneficial effect. While I also don't think that um, pluralism in the, the governmental level is something that can be enforced or influenced from the outside, um, that one thing that actors can always do is decide where to pursue developmental project or which um, communities to emphasize on. And we very often have communities which are very clearly um, disenfranchised from the government. And Hazara community would be a pretty good example um, where you can promote a, a developmental project in Hazara territories. Um, and you can do uh, educational programs and uh, uh, provide medical services and focus on areas of ethnic minorities, for example, or religious minorities. Um, and yeah, this is something that is feasible. And this is something that depending on the concrete Taliban actors that you're dealing with, um, you may have um, uh, grounds to discuss and actually to promote because it doesn't touch their immediate interests, which is controlling the state and politics. But where you could, for example, ask for more inclusivity is uh, if you if you try to support the uh, universities and if you're trying to finance universities or some university programs, you could ask for quotas, ethnic quotas uh, among the students, for example, uh, to say, okay, now in future, we don't want the Azara uh, minority to be excluded uh, at university. You need to fulfill a certain quota of Azara students and have them admitted to that and that program. That's a possibility. But to ask or to force them to have Azara politicians in parliament, if there is a parliament, that would be nice, but it's not realistic, I fear. Yeah? So you could do that through universities. And then, you know, if the, because what, what has been done very well in the last years, uh, is one of the few things is that the Azara minority actually was able to get the education that was denied them in, in the longest time of Afghan history. So these last 20 years, uh, many people from the Azara community have used it very well to their advantage and have become very educated.
Another famous Afghan song, Afghan musicians were helped by European institution. Is there still any space for this kind of cultural foreign policy? I don't think music is really something that um, there will be any common ground. So I think we need to forget that. Also, when it comes to creativity, as we're used to in, in, in uh, the Western world, it comes to movies or, or theater or anything like that. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that there's any uh, any chance for that, at least for now, maybe in 20 years time, but not now. If you want to talk about one example, I think what you should continue is um, uh, what was also a great uh, insight into the country um, and coming back to this idea of, of teaching Afghans their own history, there were a lot of archaeological sites that were um, uh, worked on by, by international archaeologists uh, where, where uh, a lot of old treasure that you have a lot of treasure in, in Afghanistan and then has been digged into too much in the past uh, and uh, the hugest problems were security problems and a lot of these security problems are now solved because the security problem was the Taliban uh, preventing people from going there or, or having attacks on streets and on convoys etc. So now now there is a possibility um, to, to continue these works at archaeological sites and maybe then um, help in, in funding the museum that the, uh, the Taliban, for example, didn't close down. Um, the historical sites, they didn't close down. They're very proud to invite people into the museum now and, and guide people through the museum, of course, with their own agenda in mind, of course, uh, that's always uh, a given. But uh, that's an entrance way to, to say, okay, we'll focus on, well, not let's not focus on Islamic education but you know museums it's just history it's just something that we dig out of the ground and then we can work with it archaeologists can work and sort of explore what has happened in the past that's something that many Taliban are not opposed to uh, they are actually very proud of it and it would also to a certain degree gain them some reputation and so they're willing to take that I think uh, without having to compromise on their main issues but it's an entrance into into civil society it's something that Afghans um, can can gives Afghans a sense of self and a sense of identity and maybe also create a sense of unity that some people are trying to, to, to sort of destroy at the moment. So um, museums, I think museum work, um, everything that's connected to that is something that can be done without huge ideological problems. There will be ideological problems, of course, but it's, it's kept to a minimum. I think museum work, archaeological work, definitely some area where uh, things should continue. And to answer the question, yes, but definitely those organizations need to be there uh, and not by giving the Taliban everything and telling them now you do whatever you like, but just being there, being on the ground, they should definitely return, yes. So the presence of German cultural institutions, like for example, the Goethe Institute is important to Afghans? Just focus first up, focus on their basic, um, because if, if uh, an Afghan hears Goethe Institute, they think, okay, well, I'll learn German there, and that's it. Uh, and so if this is this is the core program of the Goethe Institute, I know they go much further than that, but it's a very, very basic understanding of what they do. So if they do that, that will already help so much because it will give ordinary Afghans the feeling that they are not neglected, that there's a, still a way uh, out. And having a way out also means having a way in. So there's always a, sort of a reciprocity in that. Um, and and just, uh, because this trauma from the 90s where everybody just completely forgot about the country because no one was there, that still looms large. So if the Goethe Institute just focuses on teaching people German, um, then they can build a reputation uh, for that. If other institutes, if you have, for example, institutes that, that 
try to, to, to give people the possibility to do TOEFL tests or something like that. That is very basic. It doesn't uh, seem very uh, to have a huge agenda. It will be accepted more because it serves a certain purpose. And that purpose is to study, to learn more languages, maybe go abroad, maybe come back one day. And uh, that is something that is very basic that can definitely work. And then you are on the ground and people feel will feel watched and that's a good thing the good institute doesn't have to have huge programs i think uh, the programs will develop then with with uh, the people who come there uh, one of the main advantages of institutions like the good institute being on the ground would be that by engaging actors and by engaging also taliban actors you would gain a better understanding and a better knowledge about these factions and who's on the ground. So for example, who are moderate Taliban actors that we can actually talk about? We right now have a lot of assessments about who are the more moderate factions, who are the more hardline factions, but a lot of that information tends to be outdated. Um, it tends to fall into uh, categories that don't necessarily make sense. Um, and just to have that understanding of who are actually identifying, who are actually the partners that we can work with um, we don't necessarily know that at the moment. This is something that we need a presence on the ground for to actually assess that. Um, so I think this is one of the problems that we have with a lot of the more concrete questions of what can be done, that we actually don't have all the knowledge to be able to assess that. Um, and the very first step would be to have a presence to have these channels, to have these assessments of what is possible I mean, in my opinion, engagement in Afghanistan has to uh, start a new chapter, um, which has to be different from the chapter that was done during the intervention regime. And that pretty much starts with being on the ground and starting these networks of um, local actors uh, in order to build the groundworks to maybe have a long-term engagement to later on be able to support civil society actors and um, larger social projects. But it very much has to start on the ground, very much on the basics, in this new paradigm of what the Taliban government uh, basically is. And for that, there needs to be presence as soon as possible. You think the controversial Oslo talks end of January, where Taliban officials, Western diplomats, and members of Afghan civil society, like journalists and women rights activists, discussed humanitarian aid, but also education for women, were a step in the right direction? I'd also mention, for example, if we talk about inclusivity, I think this step that by the Norwegian government uh, will see what the outcome is of, the, of these talks that happen in Oslo, I think. Um, but uh, that was a good step because it was a very open uh, sort of way of bringing together the Taliban and other activists um, um, in, in, a, in a place that seems uh, much more neutral than uh, whatever you could do in Afghanistan itself or in other countries surrounding Afghanistan. So that was a very good step. Thank you, Yasmin and Tarek, for your insights and this interesting talk, and also a big thanks to our listeners.